Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to First uh, Peter, and since this is our uh, last time spent in First Peter, we're going to kind of be jumping all over the book. So uh, Peter has uh, called his readers aliens, pilgrims, strangers. Aliens are foreigners living in a land not their home. Strangers reside temporarily in a foreign place and can also be called sojourners. Peter has described them in chapter 1, verse 1, as also being scattered, which is a figure of Christians who live dispersed in this world in all different countries and all different places. And one of the themes of Peter in this letter is that we don't have a home here. We're just aliens, we're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're passing through. But we do have a home, but it's not here. It's not this life. It's our home in glory with Jesus Christ whom we will spend eternity with because of what He has done for us. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we all need to be reminded of this precious truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us in giving us a home. The purpose of 1 Peter goes something like this as I understand the book is to encourage Christian pilgrims to live godly lives in the midst of suffering by fixing their hope on Christ and the glory to come. And in my mind, that kind of summarizes what Peter has been saying in the five chapters of this book. So what I'd like for us to do is kind of break this down. I want us to look do an overview, a quick overview of what Peter says about our living Savior, Jesus Christ, and then what he's going to say about our living hope, and then finally, our living response to Christ and this incredible inheritance that He has given to us. So we're just going to kind of survey Peter and walk through Peter forward and backwards and sideways and just look at some of the verses that he has emphasized on, uh, on these three topics. So the first one is our living Savior, Jesus Christ. And basically what Peter is going to emphasize is he's going to look at Christ from eternity past to eternity future. He's going to give us a kind of a, a 30,000 foot gaze at the glory of Christ that spans from eternity to eternity. So we'll begin with uh, chapter 1, verse 20, where it says that, referring to Christ, that He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now I'm using the New American Standard. And notice it uses the word foreknown. Literally, that's what this Greek word is. If you translate it, it's foreknowledge is what he's saying. But if you have the NIV this morning, you'll have the word chosen instead of foreknown. And if you have the King James, you'll say foreordained instead of foreknown. 
So why did the translators use these different words? Well, because the word foreknowledge in Scripture is not God looking down through the ages and seeing what's going to happen ahead of time. That is not God's foreknowledge. God foreknows all things because God has foreordained all things. And that's really the meaning of this particular Greek word. So that's why sometimes it's translated as foreordained or as chosen. And the word chosen actually brings out the, uh, the taste of a, of a different nuance in this word foreknown. Not only does it speak to foreordination by God, but to foreknow Christ, which is what's being said here, the Father has foreknown Him before the foundation of the world. The foreknowledge speaks to a special covenant knowledge and love that the Father has for the Son. He has foreknown the Son before the foundation of the world. And this foreknowledge, if you take the word knowledge out of it, you can think of the word like Adam knew Eve. So Adam knew her in a special, intimate, covenant relationship. And what foreknowledge means in this particular verse also is that God had this special covenant knowledge of Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. He foreknew Christ. He loved Christ. He had chosen Christ within the covenant of redemption to come and be our Savior. Christ volunteered for that position as well, by the way. So the first thing that Peter tells us about our living Savior is that He was foreknown from all eternity. Now notice it says that the Father in the context foreknew Christ as a person. It doesn't say He foreknew what Christ would do. It says He was foreknown. Christ was foreknown. Which puts a special emphasis on this personal covenant knowledge that God the Father had with God the Son before He ever created the heavens and the earth. And then Peter emphasizes, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you. And this speaks of the incarnation. When God the Son with God the Father and, the, and God the Holy Spirit existed in, in perfect love and harmony and fellowship from before the foundation of the world, eternally existing in that loving relationship, yet in the covenant of redemption that was planned before the foundation of the world, Christ would come, the Son of God would come down from heaven to earth, take on a second nature, a human nature, and be our Savior. So Peter says, now this Son of God who is foreknown by the Father in this special loving covenant relationship, He's appeared in these last times for your sake. He's come down to be our Redeemer, our Mediator, our Savior. And so Peter wants us to understand this about the glory of Jesus Christ and who He is so that we would worship Him and adore Him for all that He is and what He's done for us. Well, Peter then says in another place, actually the verse is just preceding the verse we looked at, 
what Jesus did. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, He says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but, i.e., you are redeemed, I'm adding those words, with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So now Peter wants his readers, he wants us to be reminded of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And he starts out in verse 18 by saying, you know what? Your souls, your body cannot be stained with silver and gold. Because you're a sinner and you can't redeem sin with money. You can't work for your salvation. You can't merit your salvation. You can't buy God off with silver and gold for your redemption. Rather, it takes precious blood. And there's only one who had precious blood. And that is the Lamb of God unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So notice Peter's emphasis here about in verse 19 that this precious blood comes from a lamb. And here Peter is certainly emphasizing the concept of the atonement that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. But you can't atone for sin with silver and gold. Because our debt of sin, the debt we owe for our sin, is not like a traffic ticket that you just go and pay off with money. The wages of sin is death, not dollars. So silver and gold can't redeem you. Nothing in the universe can redeem you but one thing. And that's the precious blood of the Lamb of God. There is no other way to be forgiven. No other way to be redeemed but through the Lamb who is unblemished and spotless. Here Peter is emphasizing the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. That He's fully God and fully man, but He's without sin so He can take our place. He's the unblemished and spotless Lamb of God. It's the very blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why animals could not redeem anybody in the Old Testament because they don't share a nature. But Christ has appeared in these last days bearing our nature, assuming our nature with His divine nature. So that now He's fully God and fully man. But because He's fully man, He can redeem us. He can be our substitute. He can die in our place. Peter expounds on this more in chapter 2 when he says, referring to Christ, that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. And then in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He may bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So in these verses, Peter has already emphasized who Christ is. He's the sinless, unblemished Lamb of God. 
who is foreknown before the foundation of the world by the Father. But now he's emphasizing what Christ did. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He died for sins once for all time. By His wounds we are healed. And again, emphasizing the atonement. He bore our sins. And that doesn't just mean that God wrote out our sins on a piece of paper and laid them on the head of Jesus Christ. He bore the punishment for our sin. He bore the guilt. He suffered in our place. All of the full penalty that we owe to God because of our sin. Christ bore the full curse of the wrath of God for sinners like us. That's why the author of Hebrews could say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because someone had to die to atone for your sins and for my sins. And Jesus shed His precious blood to do that. But notice also in verse 24 of chapter 2, He bore our sins, again, as our substitute emphasizing that glorious truth. And then in verse 18, He died for sins once for all. This is not once for all people. This is a temporal adverb in Greek. And the idea is once for all time. Never to be repeated again. You don't need to keep repeating the Mass to re-sacrifice Christ. Once for all time. Why once for all time? Because when Jesus died that one time, He fully satisfied God's wrath. No more sacrifice needed. And then He sat down at the right hand of God the Father showing that He had totally satisfied all of God's justice. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 53 verse 11 that says, Speaking of the Father, it says, as a result of the anguish of His soul, Jesus' soul, He, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. Now this is an amazing thing for God, the Holy Father, to look upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that He so fully drank the cup of God's wrath that we should drink forever. Christ bore that for us. And when the Father saw the sacrifice, the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ, He said, I am satisfied. My law is satisfied. My curses are satisfied. My wrath and and righteousness and justice is satisfied. So that there's healing and salvation in no one else but in Jesus Christ. And Peter wants us to review that and rejoice in it. So he goes from the cross of Christ then to the resurrection of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, Peter has already written, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we have a living hope because it's connected with the living Savior. So our hope that we'll look at in just a moment, again, cannot be separated from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In chapter 1, verse 21, Peter again will say, "...who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory." 
He exalted Him to the Father's right hand. So Peter's just reviewing the Gospel for his readers. And he's emphasizing that Christ arose from the dead because He had fully conquered our sin and the penalty of death that we deserve. He goes on and emphasizes Christ's resurrection in other places in chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism now saves you. We've studied what that phrase means in the past. It doesn't mean that you're actually literally saved when you get baptized with water. But he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 22, he then says, who is now at the Father's right hand. So he was raised from the dead, but now he's in heaven at God's right hand. And all the angels and authorities and powers in heaven have been subjected to him. He is now Lord of lords and King of kings. He's on his throne. And Peter says, I want you to remember that. Because that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why you can be forgiven because of what Christ, who Christ is and what He has done for us. And then what uh, Peter emphasizes in another place in chapter 4 is what, what is Christ doing right now? Well, in chapter 2, verse 4, He says, "...and coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men..." referring to Christ as the living stone, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is Christ doing now? Well, He's building up a spiritual house. He's building His temple. He's the living stone, verse 4, a few verses later, Peter will call Christ the cornerstone. So he's a living cornerstone, choice and precious in the sight of God. And he's in heaven now, building up his temple, and we are living stones in that temple. And Christ is building his church. Remember, that's what he had told his disciples back in Matthew 16. It says to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Christ is now the living Son of God, the living Savior, the living cornerstone, exalted on the Father's right hand, sitting on His throne, but He's actively participating in building His church on earth. That's what He's doing right now. And you and I are living stones in that temple. Which means that you and I need to catch the vision of what we are in Christ. We are living stones. We're part of a holy temple. And we're to reflect that in our lives. So that when people see us, they see difference. Because of what Christ has done and what He's doing in our life. So that's what He's doing now. But there's also a future crisis coming back. And Peter doesn't want us to forget that either. So he's emphasized that in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Christ is revealed again at His second coming, that's what Peter has in mind. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And then in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So while Peter, basically he's gone from eternity past all the way to the second coming and beyond because his glory will never end. He's exalted with glory. That will stretch on through all eternity. And so what Peter has reminded his readers in this book is look at Christ. Look at your Savior and worship Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. And what He's done for us is to save us and give us a living hope. Our living Savior has given to His church A living hope. So Peter writes again in verse 3, And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our living Savior has given us a living hope. Now this hope, you say, well, what is that hope? Well, it's not a hope for a million dollars or a hope for perfect health. If God gives that to you, praise God, rejoice in it, and use it wisely for His glory. But he's talking about a hope that's far better than that. He's talking about the hope of glory. He's talking about the hope of heaven. And so, if we follow along Peter's line of thought here in chapter 1, Here's the living hope that He wants us to be mindful of and not forget. That we've been given a living hope to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our living hope is a hope of a future glory yet to be revealed. It'll be revealed when Jesus Christ comes back. But that is our hope. It's the hope of heaven, the hope of glory, the hope of being with Jesus Christ forever and ever in heaven. And this is something that Peter wants us to be very, very mindful of. Notice the word inheritance here. In the Old Testament, Israel was given an inheritance and it was the land of Canaan. Ours is better. Ours is a heavenly country, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11. Ultimately, on the new earth with the new Jerusalem. The promise of the land given to Israel was it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. And that sustained the pilgrims during that 40-year wilderness march that they did in the desert. Now, where are they heading? Well, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And for those 40 years, they struggled. They complained. They groaned because it was difficult living out in the desert, living in tents all the time. 
And they struggled in that period of their existence. But they had that hope. God's going to get us to the land of Canaan. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And it would sustain them and revive them and motivate them. Whenever they weren't committing idolatry, which they were doing a lot as well. But God wants us to have a similar hope. Because this life can be a wilderness. This life can be tough. This life can be difficult. And He wants us to have that living hope of our inheritance in heaven. Which is far superior to the land of Canaan that God promised to Israel. Our heavenly hope is to give us courage and to give us joy to persevere when things get difficult in this life. Peter's described our inheritance as imperishable. Unlike the land of Canaan that could be invaded by enemies and destroyed and trees cut down and wheat robbed and stolen. It could be desecrated by Israel's enemies. Even in Peter's day, the land of Israel was subjugated to the Roman Empire. But our heavenly inheritance can never perish. It can never be invaded by the enemy. It's an everlasting, imperishable inheritance which nobody or nothing can ever take away from the believer. He then describes it as being undefiled. Because Israel's land was continually defiled by their idolatry and their immorality. Their temples to all these pagan gods that defiled the land by their worldliness, their false worship. But heaven will be a land that cannot be defiled because there's no sin there. There's no evil there. In fact, it will be full of God's glory and true worship will abound. That's all we'll be able to do is to have pure, true worship of God. I love what Habakkuk prophesied about this in chapter 2, verse 14, when he said, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine that? I mean, we live in a world today that's full of idolatry and full of wickedness and evil of every kind, every shape. And we moan as we're going through that. Kind of like Lot living in Sodom that his righteous soul was tormented. Either Jude or 2 Peter says that, I forget. But we feel that way sometimes. And yet, the hope of our inheritance is a place where it cannot be defiled. At all. There'll be no sin, no defiling uncleanness, no disease, no sickness, no pain, no sorrows, nor tears, nor death. And our hearts will be totally permeated and saturated with love for Christ and love for one another. That's what we have to look forward to. We live in a world of hate and a world of war and a world of friction and people don't agree and they don't get along. And But in heaven, it's going to be different. And that should be a longing for us that one day we will be there and experience that with our Savior. Peter also says that our inheritance will not fade away. All the beauty and preciousness 
of things in this life fade away. Physical beauty fading away. The beautiful flowers of the springtime will blossom and show their beauty and their fragrance, but only for a short time. It will fade away. The masterpieces, paintings, the paint will suddenly lose the richness and vividness and vitality of its color over time. It will fade away. Our own clothing can become moth-eaten. And everything seems to wear out and break down. But none of heaven's glory will fade with time. It will not fade away. It's not like a soap bubble that hangs in the air for the moment and you can maybe see a little rainbow in the colors, but then it pops and it's gone. Heaven is eternal. It's something we can rejoice in. And then Peter says that it's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. It's already. It's kept safe for us. It's under divine lock and key, if you will, waiting our, our arrival. It's not hidden away somewhere on earth where people can steal it or Satan can defile it. No, it's in heaven where God guards it day and night. It's there. It's ready. It's reserved for us. And then Peter adds in verse 5, it's reserved for us Our inheritance is reserved and we are reserved for our inheritance. Because he says we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you're protected for that too. You can't lose your salvation. We're protected by God's power. And God has all power. And our omnipotent God protects you for this inheritance. So that our inheritance is protected for us, but we're protected for it as well. This power of God is through faith. And you say, well, maybe that's the weak link in this whole thing. It's faith. Because our faith can be up and down or maybe we can lose our faith. But Peter knows firsthand that once God gives the gift of faith, you cannot lose it. And the reason why you cannot lose it is because the gifts of God are irrevocable. And He's not going to take it back. And even when the Lord told Peter, and you remember this well, Simon, Simon, Peter has requested permission to sift you like wheat. And obviously that was telling Peter that Satan's going to bring such a sifting in your life, he's going to separate your life, tear you apart in effect. And that's what will happen when Peter will deny the Lord three times. But Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when again you have returned, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Jesus won't let your faith fail. Yeah, our faith is going to have bumps and ups and downs. We'll fall into a pit. We may struggle with sin for a period of time, but the Spirit of God within us through the prayers of Christ will not allow us to ever 
permanently, fully fall away from the grace of God. And that's Christ's promise. So, even though it says you're protected by God through faith, and you say, well, that's the weak link. It's not a weak link. Because our faith is given and sustained by God who has promised that He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're protected. So there's a guarantee that believers are going to inherit this incredible gift of heaven. Peter emphasizes the same thing in one other place. Well, in other places, but another verse. That we're to prepare our minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is emphasizing here is we have this incredible inheritance that's in the future. We don't have it in hand yet. It's promised. But he says, I want you to fix your hope completely on that incredible grace, that mother load, that bounty of grace that you'll receive when Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming. He says, fix your hope completely upon that. In other words, fix your hope completely on your hope. Fix your hope on the the hope of glory that Christ will bring when He returns. I think throughout the letter, what Peter is trying to encourage us to to have is a pilgrim's pilgrim-mindedness and also a future eternal-mindedness. That we're just traveling through. This is not our home. So fix your hope completely on that grace which will usher you into your eternal home. Fix your hope now completely on that. Our blessed hope is something that every believer should should strive to cultivate. And I think this is it's difficult for me to fix my hope completely on the grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I out of each day, I mean it's a battle, it's a struggle. I mean, I'm sure I go through days I don't even think about it once. So it's a battle, but Peter is exhorting us to take pains, to take effort, to think about the glory that awaits us when He comes back. That grace to be brought to us is going to, assuming we've died before Christ comes back, but there will be one generation that will be alive. But for those who have died, it will involve the resurrection. We will be resurrected and glorified. We will be like Christ... John tells us in 1 John 3, but we'll also be with Christ. That's part of the grace, the glory that awaits us. So it's our blessed hope of this future grace which gives believers the grace now to endure the losses and the sufferings of this life. And that's one of Peter's main points. In his letter. If you don't have that hope of glory. If that's not a reality. A truth that you find yourself rejoicing in from time to time. Then you will not. You you will go through your suffering and afflictions. And suffer far more from it. If you don't have that hope. It's that hope of glory. 
that enables people to endure suffering now. Look at what the Lord Jesus said to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. You're blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad. Now you think, that's crazy. So people are insulting Me. They're persecuting Me. They're lying about Me. And I'm supposed to rejoice and be glad in that? you got to be kidding. But read the rest of what He says. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who are before you. See, we don't rejoice in the insults or the suffering. But the great prophets of God, they endure that too. And our reward in heaven will be great, Jesus says. And that's something we can rejoice in. But if you don't have that future glory perspective, if it's all buried down in your life, tucked away in the back of some closet of your mind, then that truth won't be there to to give you that joy when you're going through difficult times. Because you're so fixated on the here and now. And Peter is saying, get your hope and fix it on the glory, the grace to come. Because that's what's going to give you grace now to endure whatever trial or trouble you're going through. It's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 10. The author is writing, and he says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Okay, so now they're coming in. They're kicking you out of your house. They're taking all of your property, your money, your belongings, your food. And he says, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How can they do that? Knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. So even the author of Hebrews says, look, that can give you joy now. In the midst of the government or whoever it is that's coming and robbing you blind because you know you've got a better possession than whatever it is they're taking from you and it's an eternal possession. And that's where the joy comes from. John wrote under the guidance of Jesus to the churches, seven churches in the book of Revelation. And this is what he said to one of them. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. What would enable someone to be faithful unto death if they didn't have the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus is saying through John as He's writing this letter, don't fear. Be faithful. Even if you die, be faithful. Because your reward, the grace to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ will more than compensate whatever they have stolen from you. I think from this we need to be on guard and not make idols of our blessings. <clears throat> we shouldn't make an idol of our health to whatever degree we have of it. 
or our wealth, again, for however much we might have, or our liberty. You know, we've been very blessed in America because we have so much liberty. We don't want to make it an idol, though. Most of the church throughout church history has not had the blessings that we've had in America. So we don't want to make these things idols. That would not be good. We're not supposed to also be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. I mean, that we're so focused on heaven, we're just like in neutral. We're just don't get involved. We don't help people. We don't evangelize. We just, we just don't do anything. We're just so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. That's not what he's emphasizing either. But in America, we should, we should use our freedoms wisely Because in America, we have the freedom to have a voice in our government to protect those freedoms and blessings that we have. How long those will last, no one knows. But ultimately, the focus for our hearts and lives and minds is not totally on the here and now. It's on the future. It's on the glory to come. Because whatever in God's providence He ordains for America going forward, we can still have joy because of what we have waiting for us in the future. And I really think this is a big part of what Peter is encouraging the church as pilgrims and aliens to get into their heads. Look, you're just passing through. This is not your home. Your home is in heaven. You're only here for a little while. Spend your time wisely. Spend your resources wisely for the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use it to be a blessing to other people, to do good to other people in so many different ways. Good laws are a blessing to our neighbor. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to live in a, in a culture that respects people, that's just and, and, and uh, does the right thing. And we have the Freedom, obviously, to be a part of that and should be a part of that. But ultimately, this is not our home. That's Peter's focus. And may God be pleased to protect and prolong the freedoms that we enjoy and the blessings that we have. But if they're taken away and we suffer for our faith, we can be sustained by the hope of glory, the grace to be brought to us. So that brings me quickly to the last section and that is so how should we respond to this how should we respond to the living savior jesus christ who he is and what he's done to save us from our sins how should we respond to the living inheritance the living hope that he has given to us well again as i've already been emphasizing rejoicing has to be one of the big themes peter has written Again, in chapter 1 of our inheritance in verse 4, and in verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. See, we're all distressed by trials. Some of us may experience suffering for our faith. So we're all going to have these trials. But our joy is in the inheritance that Christ has for us. 
We can't really rejoice in trials or suffering, but we know that ultimately we'll be in heaven. And Peter says, in this, referring to the inheritance, you greatly rejoice. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, now here comes a persecution, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. You can just sense the theme of rejoicing. What is it that gives us that joy when we're suffering now, when we're being persecuted now? It's to know that I'm just here for a little while. I'm passing through. My home is in heaven which will be forever. And for Jesus Christ, we must be willing to endure whatever suffering providence lays in front of us, even if it takes our life, because ultimately the reward in heaven is worth it, according to the Lord. We should rejoice And you know that joy is available to you right now. If you don't have the joy of the Lord in your heart, if you don't have the joy of your salvation, it's only because you or me have have neglected it. Because that is a joy that is always available to us. And whenever you start to feel your soul sink down in depression or discouragement or anger, whatever it is, you get your mind on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you dwell on that and you'll find a joy being lifted up in your heart. And the only reason we don't have that is because we've buried that hope and we've neglected it. And Peter says, don't do that. Rejoice in it. It's truth I've given to you to encourage you and to give you joy now, even in the midst of trials and sufferings. So embrace that hope. Yes, it's elusive. We don't, it's like trying to catch a fly with your hand. I mean, how many times do you actually catch one? And sometimes trying to catch that hope of glory can be that elusive, but it's worth the effort. Peter adds, and just real quickly, be obedient and holy children. That's how we respond to Christ, our living Savior, and the living inheritance and hope that He's given us. Respond with obedience and desire to be holy. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Because when we realize that my home is in heaven, which is a place of holiness, I want to be holy now. I want to fight against my lusts and my sin. And Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Be those saints that the Lord has called you to be. You know, gravity is uh, stronger at sea level than it is on top of Mount Everest. You can actually measure there's a difference. Because the farther away you get from the planet, the less gravity pulls on you. And there's a spiritual truth there. Because the more our thoughts and our minds are separated from this world and we are way up meditating upon the glories of heaven, the less the gravity of the worldliness of the life and the culture in which we are in, the less grip, the less force it will have to pull you down. So the motivation is to get your mind in heaven because that will reduce the tug and the pull of the world's gravity, the sinful spiritual gravity that pulls us down. 
And it's less when our thoughts are flying with the eagles in the heavens. Number four, he says, fervently love one another. Love the brethren. In chapter 4, verse 8, Peter will even say this, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That was our theme earlier, loving one another. This is what Peter emphasizes four times in the letter. To love one another, to love the brethren, to fervently love each other from the heart. Because love of the brethren is one of the ways we are preparing ourselves to enter into the glory that awaits us. And why is that? Because heaven is a world of love. There's nothing but love in heaven. Again, I think a month or two ago I referred to Jonathan Edwards' great... uh, I don't know if it was a sermon... May have been a sermon, or he just wrote it on heaven as a world of love. And again, I encourage you to read that. But by loving one another now, we're preparing ourselves for living in a in a state of perfect love. You know, everybody we don't like now, everybody we we may hate now. In heaven, all that's going to be gone. Everybody that's in heaven, every person, every angel, God, it'll be perfect love in heaven. And it's true we struggle with that now. I think the old poem goes, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. So we struggle in our love now. But we need to repent of that. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us of our lack of love. Because what love does it covers a multitude of transgressions. And oftentimes people injure us or they mistreat us or they insult us or whatever offense we may have. Love overcomes that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Quickly, number five, long for the pure milk of the Word because what is it that's going to help me lift my thoughts to the glory of heaven but the Word of God? There's nothing else around us that will do that. So we need to long for the pure milk of the Word like newborn babes because this is going to draw our minds to Christ and His glory and heaven and all of those wonderful things. It comes from the Word of God. We need to long for it and spend time in it. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts is another thing that Peter said. This is how we respond to Christ and to the hope of heaven that He's given to us. Sanctify Him as Lord. Set Him apart as King and Master and Lord of my life. That's how we respond to this. And when we fail and and we put ourselves on the throne, then we need to continue to repent and ask forgiveness and pray for more grace. We need to love Christ. Sanctify Him. Love Him. Proclaim Him. And then finally, trust in the Lord when suffering. Because the Lord always has a purpose in your trials. Peter says, your trials are only for a little while. In chapter 1, verse 6. Your trials are a necessary part of your sanctification. 
He went on to say that your trials are necessary because they prove your faith. They test your faith, but they prove your faith. Your trials are there to help you actually let go of your idols of this world and long for the glory of heaven. And without trials and sufferings, we're just too content and happy with life in this world. And God sends trials in your life and in mine to remind us this is not our home. We are pilgrims. We're passing through. So trust God that every trial in your life, every suffering has a redeeming purpose. And ultimately, they will end and we will end up with Christ in heaven forever. Well, I close with Jeremiah Burroughs. I've shared this with you before. His treatise on earthly mindedness. And he says he was a pilgrim. I'm a Puritan, excuse me. He says, why should Christians seek heaven? It's a good question. Because Jesus Christ, their Savior, is in heaven. Their King is in heaven. Their treasure is in heaven. Their inheritance is in heaven. Their hope is in heaven. Their mansion is in heaven. And their reward is in heaven. And what John in Revelation 22 says, that when we get to heaven, not only will we live with Christ forever, but we will see His face. And we will fall down and worship the Lamb of God who shed His precious blood for our sins to not only save us, but to give us the hope of glory yet to come. So be faithful to Him now. Love Him. Serve Him. Be willing to endure whatever providence lays in front of you. Because God is using that to refine your faith, awaiting the day when He will come and call us to Himself who will be forever and ever. These are some of the things that I think Peter wants us to remember and to meditate upon. So may God help us to do that. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank You for the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring Peter to to write this letter. And we just pray, Lord, that though we are ending our study of it, that the truths found in this letter would continue to grow within our own hearts and minds and bear much godly fruit for the glory of our living Savior. So Father, continue to bless us. We thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word together. And we give You praise and glory for all the the grace that still awaits us to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.